0: As some children are being dismissed to Sunday school, I will encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We have uh, begun something in our church in which I'm attempting to provide an outline handout uh, for each sermon. And uh, if you did not receive one, but you'd like a paper copy, there might still be some on the back table. And feel free to to step up and, and get one if you would like. Today we are actually in our church also beginning a new sermon series in the mornings in the book of Ephesians. And um, I'm actually a week behind where I earlier thought I would be, so that we're just starting today. But I uh, asked Pastor Tom if uh, he thought that would be fitting today, and he, uh, he gave the okay, so blame him. Uh, we are going to be trying to cover verses 1 through 6 today in Ephesians chapter 1. But first of all, as we approach the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, and this is such a precious letter um, and such a a pinnacle of New Testament truth that I feel utterly unworthy to be preaching a series, but it's one of those books that we just have to, uh, we have to do this, we have to go through it. Uh, It is essential for our Christian lives. As we introduce the series, let me talk a little bit about Paul's history with Ephesus. I don't want to spend a lot of time here because I want to get into the text quickly, but it might help, especially for the series as a whole, to, to be reminded of, of the history here. It was under Paul's ministry, of course, that the church took root in Ephesus. Uh, Paul made a brief visit at one point, spoke in the synagogue, but was not able to stay long. People wanted him to stay longer, and he promised, if the Lord permitted, that he would be back. He was back later. We have an account of him interacting with some very uh, interesting people who were uh, selectively informed on some things. They knew about John the Baptist. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit. We're not getting into that today, but uh, they were some of... The first disciples in Ephesus and uh, Paul further informed them about the faith. They received the Holy Spirit. That was in Ephesus. And that began Paul's first extended visit in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. Um, The ruins there are surprisingly intact and extensive. Uh, Back then, it was the Roman province of Asia, and Ephesus was one of the most prominent cities one of the most ancient cities over there. This was in uh, a very Greek area of the world. On Paul's first extended visit, um, after Apollos, by the way, also spoke for Christ in the synagogue there in Ephesus, we find in Acts 19 and verse 8 that Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, that Roman province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And next it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. After that, in the account in Acts, we see that there was actually a riot in Ephesus. A riot provoked by silversmiths those who made little figurine idols for the goddess Artemis, or Diana, of the Ephesians. The gospel had a huge impact in Ephesus, and from Ephesus throughout that whole region of the world, because it was a hub. It was originally a hub, as you see indicated here, of magic arts, of the worship of the gods, demons really, But it became a hub for the gospel and the church took root in Ephesus and stayed in Ephesus for centuries. Well, Paul, years later, um, he, he actually was arrested and underwent several years of trials all because of Jews from this province in Asia. Some years later, in Acts 21, Paul was in the temple in Jerusalem, and it says some Jews from Asia, the area of Ephesus, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. That's how Paul began several years as a prisoner. Because of some Jews from Asia who apparently had been in Ephesus. And had hated what Paul had done there. But eventually, Paul appeals to the court of Caesar in Rome. And through many adventures and trials, Paul makes it to Rome. And he's in house arrest in Rome for a number of years. And it appears, I have the references there for you in your notes, I'm not going to all of them. But it appears that while Paul was uh, staying in his own house, chained to a soldier, he wrote letters like this letter to the Ephesians. And if you look throughout the letter to the Ephesians, he refers to my chain, and that he's a prisoner of Christ, And part of the reason he is writing to the Ephesians is so that they are not discouraged somehow because the apostle who founded their church is in chains and is a prisoner. He wants them to understand that matters nothing for the glory of the gospel and the glory of Christ. It actually furthers the glory of Christ as he is faithful to Christ in that situation. But they should not be discouraged because their beloved apostle is in chains. Their hope is not in this world, but their hope is in the heavenly places in Christ. As I said, I don't want to spend a lot of time on introduction this morning, so I'm going to go right to the sermon text. If we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, let's read that together. And there will be plenty here for us to try to unpack in our time. So let's read starting in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 1. Well, the big idea for this opening section of Ephesians is, well, I've, I've worded it as an exhortation. Bless God the Father for His purpose of grace to sinners in Christ. With Paul, we should bless God the Father for His purpose of grace to sinners in Christ. I'm really only... Taking one third today, starting in verse three, I'm only taking one third of a long Greek sentence, though it, it would have functioned more like a paragraph does for us. But still, um, there's no way to cover everything Paul says in the one long sentence, starting in verse three. So we're just taking the first third and trying to, to do it some justice. Um, so this is the big idea of that first third. Bless God the Father for his purpose of grace to sinners in Christ. Verses 1 through 2, we will just touch on briefly. These are greetings of blessing in the Father and in Christ. Greetings sent from God's apostle. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And uh, this was sort of the usual way letters of that day would begin. Instead of saying, dear so-and-so, they would say... Um, writer to the reader, in this case Paul, to the Ephesians. Greetings. So Paul is writing this epistle in his God-ordained role as apostle, as personal representative, emissary of Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. Uh, The greetings are said, of course, to Christ's holy and faith-filled people in Ephesus. To the saints, the holy ones, who are in Ephesus, and are faithful, or many translate that who are believers in Christ Jesus. Question is: Is it talking about the faith they have in Christ or their uh, their trustworthiness, their faithworthiness, if you will, their faithfulness? Um, the word can be taken different ways depending on context. I would lean toward the believers translation. But greetings are sent to Christ's holy and faith-filled people in Ephesus. That's how he describes the church, the believers, the Christians. They believe in in Christ Jesus. I'm taking it backwards. And thus they are holy. They are set apart. They are consecrated to God as his special people. They are his people in Ephesus. Of course, saints are not certain Christians who have reached an unusually high level, so much so that we put them on a stained glass window somewhere. Uh, Saints, we know, that's, that's a New Testament term for all believers, not just some super believers. All believers in Christ Jesus are holy, consecrated to the Holy One. They are positionally holy, justified in Christ, they have received a new holy nature. There's really real holiness, sanctification at work within them. And it's, they are being transformed from glory to glory in holiness. And one day they will be perfectly holy, as the Lord is holy. But, they are, but the key idea of holiness, of course, is being set apart, consecrated to God who is holy. And is thus set apart from all that is impure as well. Verse 2, the blessing is described as grace and peace from the Father and from Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, ancient Greek letters normally open with greetings, which to them was the word Kyrene. But in these New Testament epistles, we see instead of Kyrene, we see karis, grace. Not greetings to you, grace to you. And then, of course, the Hebrew-Jewish greeting commonly would have been shalom, meaning peace. So here in the Greek, it's grace and peace. Peace or well-being from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Paul gives the greeting, he's actually pronouncing a blessing coming from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is called our Father here. He's not only the God; He's not only God the Father of Jesus Christ. He's Father to all who believe in Christ. We have that relationship directly with Him now. And then Jesus' full title is used here: the Lord Jesus Christ declares His true deity, the Lord His true humanity. He's Jesus who will save His people from their sins, who has done so now, and. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the anointed prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is God become man, the son of God, having taken to himself true humanity so that he could die. Well, he could live a perfect life for his people in their place, and he could die on the cross in their place for their sins and he could rise from the dead and now Jesus the man Christ Jesus reigns over all things from the right hand of God the father so he is truly the anointed one the Messiah I know these are basic truths for you who have been Christians for any time at all but I should at least mention them as we go through here as the foundation for everything we believe all our trust all our hope Now we get to the meat of what Paul wants to say, verses 3 through 6. We find his blessing upon the Father for his blessings in Christ. Paul is blessing God the Father in the sense of praise. Blessing God the Father for his blessings to us in Christ. Verse 3 is described as comprehensive blessing. From the triune God in the heavenly realms. And this will take a while to unpack. We'll slow down here. Comprehensive blessing from the triune God in the heavenly realms. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing or every blessing of the spirit in the heavenly places. Pardon me, my. my uh, I'm drier than usual this morning, so hopefully it won't be a dry sermon. Before we get to Paul's uh, main points here, I want to show you some important details you might miss as you just read over this verse three. Um, he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should sound a little familiar to you, that, that the way he's he's saying, Blessed be God, uh from if you have read the scriptures very much. In the Old Testament, the covenant name of God is often used in these benedictions to God. It'll say, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, or Blessed be the the Lord God the God of Israel, or something like that. Even Zechariah, um Just before the new covenant age dawns in Luke chapter one, Zechariah says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Luke 168. It opens a long um, poem of praise to God. But then in the New Testament, it switches like it does here. No longer is he called the God of Israel. He's called the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Signaling a new day, when first of all, this God is not just primarily for one ethnic group, one old covenant people. He is now, he now will have an international people. But more than that, it doesn't change from the Lord God of Israel to the God and father of the saints. In the new covenant, The new covenant established at the cross. God's covenant name is revealed with more glory than ever before. He's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the federal head, the covenant head of new covenant Israel. In God, the father's eyes, Jesus is Israel. As Isaiah says, the obedient servant of the Lord. And to be one with Jesus Christ is to be part of God's new covenant Israel. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Isaiah 49, the Messianic servant of the Lord speaks. He says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. One verse, a couple verses down, he continues. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. So this isn't just talking about, not just personifying the people of Israel. God formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored, honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant. To raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so to have Christ is to be part of God's Israel. Galatians 3, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so, in a way, it's equivalent to saying the God of Israel now to say the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it means even more because it encapsulates the gospel. God the Father has now sent God the Son to pay for sins. And the work is finished. And God's glory is revealed as never before in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man. That was a side note, really. But I think it's important. But back to Paul's flow of thought. He blesses the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Harry Uprichard says in his commentary here, Man blesses God when he offers up praise of God's worthiness. God blesses man when he grants him the highest condition of well-being possible for the creature. Behind both is the covenant theme of blessing. As contrasted with cursing, man offers God praise for his covenant name and nature. God gives to man the favor which that covenant name and nature bestow. I think that was very well put. But how has God blessed us? Why are we blessing God? In what way has God poured out his blessings on us? It says he's blessed us in Christ in and only in connection with Christ, and it's with every spiritual blessing, every blessing of the Spirit in the heavenly places. In the Greek, it actually places in Christ at the end of that whole group of words for emphasis. The emphasis is on the fact that this is all in Christ, and that keeps coming up in Paul's Paul's long sentence here. But notice, this is, a, this is the triune God here, giving us the blessing. God the Father blesses us in God the Son, through the agency of God the Holy Spirit. Notice that word spiritual. Especially in Paul's writings, he uses that word spiritual not to say religious, not to say something that I can't touch, that's, that's non-physical, He uses that word as an adjective to talk about the Holy Spirit, something empowered having to do with the Holy Spirit of God. As Paul Gardner says, the fact that these blessings are spiritual reminds us that all our blessings are in a true sense Trinitarian. In Paul's writing, the word spiritual almost exclusively points to that which comes from or is used by the Holy Spirit. And these blessings are applied to the heart and life of the Christian and sealed for the Christian by the Holy Spirit, as Paul says again in verse 13 below. So Paul praises the Father for blessings mediated to us by the Holy Spirit that we have as Christians because we are in Christ. Also connects this to the blessings of the new covenant that the Spirit of God would give, Ezekiel 36 And these blessings from the triune God are in the heavenly places. Um, Why didn't Paul just say, it's in heaven? Well, for one thing, this word in the Greek just sounds more grand. One has translated it as the high heavenlies. Um, Later in Ephesians, we will see... um, We will see various things about these heavenly places. We will see that the exalted Christ is now enthroned in the heavenly places. On the other hand, Ephesians 6, the heavenly places are also the realm where the evil spirits are at war with us. So, uh, again, as a commentator said, it's not speaking of the sky or the afterlife so much as the realm of reality. The location where the real spiritual forces of life are at work. In Ephesians, Christ is the centerpiece of the heavenlies. I'm still quoting here. He is dominant there, and his lordship is evidently supreme in that location. Thus, varied aspects of Christ's sovereignty over the principalities and powers flash through the letter to the Ephesians. That's another side note. Again, the Ephesians were were in a hub of demon worship in Ephesus, and Paul continually reminds them that Christ is enthroned above all rule and authority, seen and unseen, in the heavenly places. Before we move on to the second subpoint about the Father's blessings in Christ, don't miss this, though. Um, it may be hard to keep up with all these things piled one on top of each other, all these descriptions, but look at the total package now. These blessings are described as every spiritual blessing. Every. This is comprehensive blessing. It's all blessings. Not only every blessing that we could conceive God would ever give us. It's everything which God could ever give us, far beyond our imagination. All of it, every last glorious bit of it. It's ours. Now, that's not to say, of course, that we currently experience it or feel it all, body and soul. If so, I'm missing something. I don't feel all this, and I don't see it all with my eyes right now. But I have it. But it is to say we have it in the high heavenlies, in the heavenly places. Verse 4 will begin to explain this further we get to verse 4 we're speaking of blessing first of all determined and here's a bunch of words piled together determined by pretemporal election to blameless holiness this is how paul starts to describe this blessing it's blessing determined by an election before time began a, a choosing before time began to blameless holiness But we'll break this apart here. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before the foundation of the world, God chose, he didn't just choose us, but he chose us in connection with Jesus, in connection with the fact that Jesus would be our savior. That he would be our substitute, that he would redeem us. Because, yes, our race, um, after God created the world, would fall into sin. That was also part of God's decrees. We would be sinners, we would need a Savior. So we were chosen in Christ. But before the foundation of the world, meaning before the creation of the world, the New Testament speaks of several things that happened prior to creation. John seventeen, Jesus speaks in his prayer of sharing his Father's glory and love before the world began. First Peter one twenty, Peter speaks of Christ as the Lamb chosen before the creation of the world. The book of the Revelation, we see uh, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, but the book of life was written before the foundation of the world. As Harry Eperture says, these indicators point to a pre-creation planning of salvation. Hence, Reformed theologians Locate the divine decrees, he says, before the work of creation in their confessions of faith. Covenant theologians designate the triune ordering of the covenant of redemption, the planning of salvation by the Godhead, before the divine administration of the covenant of grace, the disclosure of salvation to mankind. Well, that was a lot to take in. Basically, to boil it down, God's choice of certain sinners... To redeem for himself was part of the covenant of redemption. It was a firm commitment within the Trinity before time began. A commitment the scripture describes as a promise by oath. For instance, Titus 1, in verse 2, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Hebrews 13.20 calls Jesus' blood, the blood of the eternal covenant. Second Timothy one, eight to nine, Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us past tense in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So when we put all the biblical statements together, we see the Father, Son, and Spirit in a what we call, we're, we're trying to put a, a name to it, the Covenant of Redemption. A covenant regarding God the Son becoming Christ the Redeemer and regarding those whom he would redeem. Now let's, let's pause, catch our breath here, and, and just uh, recognize something. It's not as if God predetermined who he would save in Christ, but then left everything else up to chance. That's not what we're saying, is it? No. As if there were such things as chance or fate in relation to the almighty God. That's foolishness. As if the, the most high ever says, whoops, didn't mean that to happen. No, not that's not the case. So we're not saying that this is the only thing God planned out before the world began. But what are we saying? Well, Paul's about to affirm in Ephesians 1.11 that we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything is part of God's eternal decree, his eternal plan. But here's the point Paul's developing here. While it's true, God has determined everything that comes to pass, and it all manifests His glory. What's the heart of that plan? The heart of that eternal decree is His glory displayed in Christ's redemption of sinners, of us. That's the heart of it. And in case you missed it, the glory is all God's, not ours. And before we go further here, uh, Calvin says something very helpful. He says, the very time when the election took place proves it to be free. That is, um, God just made a free choice. He wasn't constrained by something about us. (laughs) Um, He didn't have to choose some and not others because of them. It was his free choice. But the very time when the election took place proves it to be free. For what could we have deserved or what merit did we possess before the world was made? He goes on, how childish is the attempt to meet this argument by the following sophism. That is, this saying that someone thinks that this is wisdom to say this. We were chosen because we were were worthy and because God foresaw that we would be worthy. Calvin says, we were all lost in Adam and therefore had not God. uh, Sorry, and therefore had not God through his own election rescued us from perishing. There was nothing to be foreseen. You believe that we are really enslaved in our sins naturally. There's nothing meritorious, nothing truly good about us for God to foresee down the corridors of time, unless he steps in. He chose us not because some of us were going to be smarter than others, or we're going to be uh, more prone to choose God than others. No, God chose us because he chose us in his grace. Now, sinful human minds, of course, will all, they'll always raise objections when Scripture teaches unconditional, pre-temporal election of certain people to eternal life. <laughs> but you know, Paul isn't trying to chase down those objections here and put them in their place. He, he does that in Romans 9, but this is Ephesians 1. Here, Paul simply doesn't care about human objections. You notice that? He doesn't care. He's caught up in awestruck, mind-bending, soul-transforming praise of God's blessings to us in Christ. He's caught up in worship. He doesn't have time for silly objections. He just keeps going. But I'm going to slow down here again. Yes, sinful humanity hates the idea that God the creator would allow our race to fall into sin and its curse and then only rescue some of us sinners from the penalty of death. We feel like we deserve better than that. We deserve some sort of fighting chance, we think. But that isn't the whole picture and that isn't Paul's focus here. That he just rescues some of us from death. For what purpose does the text say God chose us? Look at it. For what purpose does the text say God chose us? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So let me paraphrase Charles Spurgeon. Speaking to each one of you, do you long to be holy and blameless? Do you want to be done with your sin and your autonomy for God? Is that what you want, really? Then God has chosen you to that. He has. Otherwise, you wouldn't want that. But if you don't long for those things, if you don't want to be done with your sin, how dare you slander God for not choosing you or others to be something you despise? That makes no sense. Yes, it's the holy and blameless in Christ who inherit eternal life because of Christ's work on their behalf. But God doesn't deny anyone justice. There's no injustice anywhere in here. If a sinner loves his sin and refuses repentance, he will answer for his sin. He'll be paid back the wages of his sin, what he's earned. He will have eternal death under God's wrath. He will not have eternal life in, in holy communion with God. So, you may not like the penalty for your crimes, but neither do you like eternal life, which is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. You would hate eternal life in your present situation because you hate God. So, enough of your objections. You just need to turn from your sins to Jesus Christ. He freely and genuinely welcomes you to do that. And if you do, you will discover that God has chosen you to holiness and thus to eternal life. But election, especially as Paul is looking at it here, election is first of all to be like your holy creator, to be holy and blameless before him. And by the way, these two specific words in the Greek that Paul puts together, holy and blameless, and then it says before God, um, these two words show up together like this some other places, like Ephesians five twenty seven, Colossians one twenty two, and in each case, um, I think it informs how we should see this text as well. What it means is, it's not talking just about our justification now. It's talking about one day when there's no, when sin in no sense is in us anymore. One day when we see the Lord face to face, He'll present us before Him. Like in Ephesians 5, where Christ the bridegroom presents his bride, the church, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless before him at his coming. Or Colossians 1.22. Um, one day he will present us holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. So it seems here what Paul's doing, in just a few words in this one verse, he's summing up redemption from eternity past, to eternity future, in terms of election. Before the world began, this was God's choice. So that, once the world is done, in new heavens and a new earth, this will be the case. We will be holy and blameless before him. One further application before we move on. As Harry Uprichard says, Election encourages holiness in the life of the believer. If the ultimate purpose of God's election is to make the believer holy, and if that purpose is irresistibly to be perfected in the believer, then the argument that I'm elect anyway, so I can live as I like, doesn't make sense. doesn't follow. It's a non-sequitur. The whole purpose of election is towards holiness. I'm still quoting here indifference or opposition towards holiness gravely questions the reality of election. We cannot isolate election from its purpose. That is, if you want nothing to do with holiness, don't tell me you're elect. That's what it's saying. But what, what a mighty spur to holiness, what, what a mighty encouragement to holiness, and making one's calling an election sure is the fact that what God has begun, he will invariably bring to conclusion holy and blameless in his sight. It is coming. If you do long for holiness, but you're struggling, listen, God chose you before the world began to be holy perfectly in the end. And he's going to get you there. And little old you, you can't get in the way of that in the end scheme of things. Yes, there'll be a struggle, but that's part of the process. But see see. See the end which no one is going to thwart. God will get you there. Well, we've taken a lot of time to grasp what Paul's begun to say. But now I think we can better appreciate what he builds on that foundation. So Paul's blessing the Father for his blessings in Christ. Actually a comprehensive blessing from the triune God in the heavenly realms determined by Election before the world began, election to blameless holiness, that's already a mouthful. But, you know, election to holiness could seem really cold and abstract. So it's further defined next as the Father's unconstrained love in eternity past. Love for those he chose to make his children and his heirs. So, end of verse 4. And uh, if you want to look at the commentaries to see why I agree with ESV here, that's great. But the last two words of verse 4 probably go with verse 5 in thought in the Greek. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So blessing is defined here by loving predestination to adopted sonship. Now, back in Paul's day, um, the fact that he talks of us as sons is not that he's just talking about the men among us. That's not his point. Elsewhere, God calls all believers his sons and daughters. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 6.18 But usually when Paul uses this word sons of all believers, the point is we are all heirs of God. In Paul's day, Um, most daughters did not receive an independent inheritance all their own. It was the sons who received that kind of inheritance. So Paul Gardner here says, by saying that we are adopted as sons and relating this all to those who are in Christ, Paul is saying that all men and women, contrary to the norm of Paul's day, and even slaves are equal members of this family. For a woman or slave, as much as for a man, being in Christ means that what is true for the king is true for his people. Christ is the son who has come into and will come into his inheritance. And we, believing men and women, are adopted sons who also have come into and will come into a guaranteed inheritance. Verse 14. So here's where I really park an application before we finish. Believer, no matter who you are, God set his love on you to make you his dear child and to give you everything that is his. Everything. He did that before the world began, before time itself began. The universe and all it contains and all its history revolves around your Savior, Jesus Christ, and his plans for you. So, whatever you are in this world, if you're a widow, if you're an orphan, a nobody, if you're abused or enslaved, that just makes what is yours in Christ all the sweeter. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. If you're taking pride in yourself or in your achievements, your smarts in this world. If you're taking pride in stuff about you in this world rather than in what God has done for you before the world began, you're a pitiful fool. As Paul says to believers who are acting like this, 1 Corinthians 3.18... Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, in this world, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, these preachers they were fighting over who who belonged to who, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. How silly to try to get our significance from something in this earth that people around us value when we have something that began before this world began and that will outlast this world. Also, don't try to hang on to things that are unworthy of your eternal calling. You don't need them. And you can't have them anyway. They're going to pass away. That's why Paul said, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6.14 For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There's more I could say there, but I'm hastening to finish. End of verse 5, end of verse 6. It wraps up by saying this blessing was purposed as glorious grace in the Father's beloved one. Purposed as glorious grace in the Father's beloved one. Continuing the thought he's been saying, Paul says at the end of verse 5, according to the purpose of his will, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has graced us, literally, in the beloved. He has gifted, graced us in the beloved. So it's according to the purpose of his will or the pleasure of his will. He's piling up two similar words here to say it's all about God's happy and free choice, not that we somehow qualified for it on our own. Just because God happily chose to do it this way. And it's to the praise of his glorious grace or to the praise of the glory of his grace. In case you haven't been listening, this is grace. It's undeserved. It's unmerited favor. It's a gift. But listen, it's not just... It's not just a gift to someone who doesn't have enough to earn it. Oh, you don't have enough money? That's okay. You can have it as a gift. No, 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 no. It's a gift to those who have done everything to earn the opposite. When we pick up in verse 7 next time in the sermon series, we'll see that there was every reason not to choose us. We were totally given over to sin the only way to ransom us from that bondage to sin was blood atonement. That's what verse 7 tells us. Redemption in his blood. And only, only the blood of a sinless man, who was also God the Son, could make that kind of an atonement. That's the only way we could be forgiven and cleansed and reconciled to the God of heaven. So Christian, you were not a poor orphan with a lovable personality that the king decided to make his son. He he doesn't merit my favor, but he's so cute. He's so lovable. No. You were a criminal on death row, whom the king chose to make his son. And because he chose you, the king's rightful heir willingly went to a bloody, horrific death in your place. And yes. Then you were transformed by a miracle in the proper sense of the term. God made you a different person. Yes, you came to trust and love the king. But we love because he first loved us. First John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And don't miss the last little part of our sermon text. It's not as if God's only begotten son was expendable to him to get us. No. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has graced us, which he has freely given us, that is, in the beloved. He doesn't say in Christ. He says in the one he loves. Paul Gardner says, As Jesus is the beloved Son and in relationship with the Father, so in Him we find we too, in love, become adopted as His sons. What is true of Christ our King is true of us who are in Him, represented and caught up in Christ before the Father. He is the beloved, we are loved. In fact, the Father did not send His only begotten Son to die in the place of sinners because Of a lack of love toward his son. This wasn't child abuse. Cosmic child abuse as some call it. The son was happy. To become one of our fallen race. And to die such a death. Because it was in that death of the cross. And in the resurrection and glory to follow. That the son could glorify the father. And the father could glorify the son. As never before. And as no other way it could be. in all the history of creation. But think what sheer grace it is that we would be the beneficiaries of these things. God has an eternal, immeasurable love for redeemed sinners. But still, God's love for his son is in a category infinitely beyond that. He only has one beloved one in this sense. It's Jesus Christ. The eternal word of God. One with the Father. And yet we, born transgressors, most of us not even impressive by our own world standards, we receive everlasting love. We receive grace upon grace upon grace because we were personally selected to be swept up in this glorious display of God's love for his Son. More on that in next week's sermon text. So as I close, today is Reformation Day, when many Christians remember the scriptural truths that fueled great gospel light five hundred years ago. We remember those five solas of the Reformation as they've come to be called. Sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone, sola gratia. Grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. But if those phrases just become mundane to us, or maybe badges to wear for our particular brand of religion, we don't deserve, we we don't even have a right to speak about them anymore. Those aren't just things that someone came up with 500 years ago, some great men somewhere. The reason they are worthy of attention is because they are foundational in the word of God, as we saw today. Particularly, three of them showed up. If we lose the wonder of texts like Ephesians 1, 1-6, our religion is hollow, and we deserve scorn. But if God's Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to these things, look what comfort, what solid comfort we have in Christ. Look what unspeakable joy is ours right now, because these things are ours right now in the heavenly places. We are God's children and heirs who will perfectly share his blameless holiness and all things in heaven and on earth are ordained toward that end. Not because it's all about us exactly, but because it's all about Christ and those in him. And it's all by his grace alone in Christ, his beloved alone. And all the glory goes to God alone. Psalm 115, one through 3 Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Let's pray together. Father, I don't have much more to say. Thank you. We thank you and praise your glorious name. Because you've given us glorious things beyond our imagination, which we didn't even desire until you changed our hearts. Thank you for our fellowship in Christ and in the things of Christ today. And for our common joy in him, no matter Our individual stations in life, no matter our individual sufferings and difficulties right now. We have every blessing from God the Father, in God the Son, by God the Spirit, in the heavenly places. And all the glory goes to you, Father. And yet, we also ask again for those of whom that is not true yet. We ask that you would call more to yourself from our midst. Help them to understand the glory of the gospel. They don't even have to its depths to begin to understand its glory if you open their eyes. Help them to see that Jesus is a glorious Savior and they desperately need him. Help all of us to spend today, the Lord's Day, Rejoicing not in ourselves, but in our Savior. And in you, Father, who chose us, loved us before time began. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.